Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 12. If you uh, do not have your your own Bible with you, you should be able to find one in the pews, and you will uh, find Psalm 12 on page 452 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 12, beginning at verse 1. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Hear his word read. To the choir master, according to the Shemineth, A psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The word of the Lord. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the reading of his word here this morning. Father, we come before you and we are humbled to sit before your word. We ask now that as it is preached, Father, that that you would be with me, that my words would be faithful and clear, and that you would be with us, that our ears would be open to receive your truth, and that it would truly renew our minds and transform our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think of when you think of Injustice. I'm sure for many of you, the the images that we saw last weekend are in the forefront of your mind as you you think of injustice. But those events are just one among many. The truth is that injustice is commonplace. Injustice is, is everywhere. It runs rampant. It runs rampant in other parts of the world, and it runs rampant right here in the United States, even here in Cleveland. Everywhere you look, vileness is exalted, as David says. Everywhere you look, vileness seems to be winning. And because the wicked seem to be winning, because they they seem to be having their way, they are on the prowl. They are looking for, for new victims to plunder and to oppress. It's true in our day, and it was true in David's day. The question is, how ought we to respond to the injustice that we see all around us? How do we respond to the seemingly endless triumph of the vile? 
Towards the end of the 19th century, liberals, at least theological liberals, suggested that the pursuit of justice in our society was the very heartbeat of the gospel. They said that the gospel isn't so much about God saving people from their sins as it is about liberating from them from oppression. And so they, they began that work with, with great zeal, the, the work of, of pursuing justice for the marginalized and the oppressed, neglecting to proclaim the gospel. And so in response to this new social movement, the, the theological conservatives, those who were known as fundamentalists, those who held to the fundamentals of, of the faith, they, they began to champion that the gospel of, of justification in Christ by His blood, the, the, the gospel of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' life, death, and, and resurrection. But in doing so... They dismissed concerns for justice as if they were the the false concerns of the liberal, as if if there were no place for them in a true church. Today, I think we have begun to recognize that, that neither answer is acceptable. Social justice is not the gospel. Social justice is not the heart of the gospel. But Jesus did call justice one of the weightier matters of the law. One of the things that we ought to prioritize. And so again, we we must ask ourselves, how should we respond to the injustice that we see all around us? That is the question that is before us this morning. And that is the question that I think this psalm helps us to answer, at least in part. This psalm helps us to to formulate a response to injustice by showing us David's response to the injustice that he saw all around him in his day. And there are at least four things that I think we need to see in this psalm. And the first is simply this. The the first thing that we must see is, is simply David's concern for the oppressed. As we've seen him do before, David gets right to the point in the very first words of the psalm. He, he begins somewhat abruptly just crying out to God, save. But notice that he doesn't say, save me. Now we've seen David cry out for personal salvation in, in other psalms. And in Psalm 3, he, is, he says it's explicitly, he says, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. He says it again in in Psalm 4. He says, answer me when I call to you, O God of my righteousness. Be gracious to me, hear my prayer. He says it again in in Psalm 6. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, deliver me, save me. He says again and again. And we could give countless similar Examples, And so we know that, that David is not hesitant to cry out for, for help when, when he is personally in trouble. But it's not what he's doing here. This psalm is a lament. It's a lament like many of the other psalms that, that we have, have studied this summer. But, but notice it's not a personal lament. This is, this is a, a corporate lament. There is no indication that David himself is in trouble. Rather, David is troubled by what he sees going on all around him. Everywhere he looks, David says, the the poor are plundered and the the needy groan. Everywhere he looks, those with power and position are using their words to to flatter and to deceive and to defraud, to, to manipulate in order to gain an advantage for themselves. 
Now, as the king, David was was likely somewhat immune to their schemes. As, As the king, David could protect himself. And so he was not personally affected by all that he saw going on around him. But notice he was not for that reason unconcerned. It is all too easy, I think, for for us to be unconcerned with injustice that does not touch us personally. We we see it going on in the news. We see it going on in another part of the world. And and we we feel bad about it. We we think it's it's a terrible thing. But but it doesn't truly concern us. I, I know this because it's my own experience. I have far too often been unconcerned with with oppression that I didn't feel. I didn't condone it. I didn't think it was a good thing. In fact, I would would say that it was terrible, but I didn't didn't feel it. And so therefore, I was not concerned as I should be. But not David. David is not unconcerned. Notice, he is grieved. He is deeply grieved by the injustice that he sees all around him. He is grieved by the triumph of the vile. And he cries out to God on behalf of the oppressed. He he cries out to God to put an end to the injustice. And this is, I think, the first thing we need to learn from this psalm. The first thing we need to learn from David. We must not be concerned merely with the injustice and the oppression that affects us personally. We must not be exclusively concerned with with the trouble in our own lives. Loving your neighbor as yourself, that, that Christian love compels you, it compels us to be concerned for the evils that ravage others, even when we do not feel the pain directly ourselves. I think if you're honest, you will admit that we, we struggle in this area. We, we struggle to, to feel the pain of others. We, we tr- struggle to have true compassion. And if that is where you find yourself this morning, then I want you to recognize that you must pray for God to change your heart. You must pray for, for God to go to work in your very soul. You see, our sin, our sin causes us to be self-concerned, self-absorbed creatures. Luther said that that sin causes us to be curved in upon ourselves. It it causes us to think and to feel as if we were the center of the universe. Or as my dad used to say, that the world revolved around us. This is what sin does to us. It it, it makes us self-centered, self-absorbed, self-concerned creatures. And as a result... We do not feel the troubles of others as we should. And if that describes you, if that describes you as it it too often does me, if your heart is sort of encased in this selfish apathy, then you must pray to God that He would change it. You see, you can't change your own heart. Through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord reminds us that we can no more change our own hearts than a leopard can change spots. We cannot simply have an act of will and decide that we are going to begin to to love our neighbor as ourselves. But what is impossible for us is possible for God. God can take away our hearts of stone. God can replace them with a a heart of flesh to know and to love Him. The, The biblical language is that God can circumcise our hearts 
so that we will love Him with all our soul and our strength and our mind and so that we will begin to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is what God can do. That is the transformation that that God can bring. And so if your heart is hard, if your heart is, is cold, if you do not feel the suffering of your neighbor, you cannot change it by a mere act of your will, but He can. And He will. He has promised to do it. He will work in us to will and to do that which is pleasing to Him. So the first thing that we see in this psalm is is David's concern. And if we do not share it, we must ask God to go to work. We must ask Him to begin to, to reshape our hearts after His own image. Because He has promised to do it doesn't always do it as, as quickly as we would like. He doesn't always, always do it as, uh, in, in the manner that we would prefer. Sometimes the, the process seems to us to be painfully slow. But if we ask Him, He will go to work renewing our hearts. He will go to work teaching us to love even as we have been loved. And that is where so many of us need to begin. We need to begin asking simply that God would give us a concern for the oppressed like that of David. But there's a second thing that we need to see here. Not only do we need to share David's concern, but we also need to share David's regard for the power of words. Notice, as, as I said, David begins abruptly. He begins crying out to God simply, Save. But notice what it is that has David so concerned. Notice what it is that is the the source of his distress. We don't have any historical details in the psalm itself, but, but, but David's words reveal a lot. David says, the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of, of men. I know David is using a bit of hyperbole here. He is, he is overstating the case. <coughs> I do not think that David literally means that he is the last man of faith in, in the world. He, he doesn't believe that, but, but as he looks around, he sees faithless men everywhere. He sees them in positions of power. He, he, he sees them with, with great influence. And he notices that these faithless men are on the prowl looking for whom they can devour. But notice what he says about these men. Notice, notice how he describes their wickedness. What is it that they are doing that reveals them to be wicked men? It's their use of words. It is their words that betrays them. Notice what he says. He says, everyone utters lies. Literally, empty words. That is, words that have no content. Words that have no connection with reality. These these faithless men are in no way constrained by the truth. They will say whatever is necessary to to bring about their desired outcome. (coughs) And one of the ways that they do this is through flattery. Notice, he mentions their their flattering lips. Flattering lips are, are lips that seek to manipulate and control, the, they, but they don't, they don't seek to manipulate and control with threats. They don't, they don't seek to manipulate and control with, with the, the broad use of power, but rather with vain praise. They do not coerce, but rather they, they twist the truth in order to make people think they want to do what it is that they want them to do. This is why David says that they speak from a, a double heart. We might say that they're two-faced. They, they say one thing, but they mean another. They, they say one thing, but in truth they have ulterior motives. They have, they have a hidden agenda. 
And this agenda is not unconscious. They they know exactly what they are doing. Look again at their boast in verse 4. They say, with our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? You see it. They, they, They know full well what they are doing. They know that their words are their weapons. And they know that with their words they will prevail. Long before the the phrase was coined, they knew that their tongues were mightier than the sword. That's why David says in in verse 8, on every side the wicked prowl. They are actually out looking for victims. They they are looking for those whom they might defraud. They are are looking for those whom they might oppress in order to, to pad their own wallets and advance their own interests. And so as we see David's description, we must recognize that if we are going to be truly concerned for the oppressed, if we are going to truly feel the pain of our, of our neighbors, then we must recognize that, that oppression is not always the result of brute force. It is sometimes the result of words. Justice and oppression are, can be subtle. They, they can be the, the result of lies and, and flattery and and double talk. And we must see this. We must recognize that, that our neighbors are oppressed not only when, when they are overrun by, by weapons of steel, but they can be oppressed by words. A husband can, can abuse his wife without his fists. A thief can, can steal without using a gun. The poor can be plundered with the mere stroke of a pen. And the innocent can be defrauded with a clever turn of phrase. I saw this powerfully illustrated in a novel I read while I was on vacation earlier this summer. The the novel is Grey Mountain by John Grisham. And in the story, there is a, a young lawyer who loses her job in New York. And as a result, she ends up doing an unpaid internship at a small legal aid clinic in the mountains of Virginia. Most of her clients are, are coal miners, and their enemy, of course, is the, the evil coal company, as these things tend to go in novels. But one of her clients is named Buddy Riser. He's been a coal miner all his life, and for more than 10 years he has had what is known as black lung disease. However, he has had to keep working in the mines. He's had to continue breathing the coal dust because the company denied his benefits. At one point in the story, he he says this, quoting, you know I should have got my benefits ten years ago. If I had, I could have gotten out of the mines and and found work somewhere else. I was only 30 then. The kids were were little. I, I could have done something else, away from the dust, something that didn't make the disease any worse. But the company fought me and it won. And so I had no choice but to keep working in the mines, to keep breathing the dust. I remember those guys in the court and in front of the administrative law judge, three or or four of them, dark suits, shiny shoes, all strutting around so important. They would look over at us like we was white trash. Just an ignorant coal miner and his ignorant, ignorant wife. They knew how to win and we didn't. They lied to the court. They they brought in lying doctors. Everyone lied and they won. They cheated. And they won. And they'll do it again because they write the rules. I guess there's just no way to stop them. It's a fictional story. 
but it resonates. It resonates because we know the power of words. We, we know the power of making the rules. We, we know the power of setting up the regulations. I no way mean to suggest that, that companies are evil. I'm thankful to live in a free market. I'm thankful to live in the, the United States of America. But we know the power of words. And we must recognize that people can be oppressed, not just with weapons of steel, but with the weapons of words. We must ask ourselves, who does this include in our culture today? Who would David be, be crying out on behalf of today? It's always dangerous to, to get into specifics because I, I know not everyone will, disagree, will agree. There, there will be disagreement. But let me give you two possible examples. Two, two, two examples just to, to think about this morning. Who is it that is oppressed by words in our culture today? The first example is those who are racial and ethnic minorities. I think we saw the evil of, of white supremacy on, on full display last weekend. And we must remember that that is not an isolated incident. Rather, that is a thread that is woven through our nation's history. Again, I, I love our country. I, I love the fact that God decided to have me born here and now. I, I am thankful for that. But let us not pretend that we are what we aren't. We must remember that we are a sinful nation and there is a thread woven through our history that has oppressed those who are racial and ethnic minorities. Those sins are still bearing fruit in our culture today. Even today, those who write the rules, those who, who set up the regulations, those who define the codes that, that determine how we live together, there is still oppression going on. I don't pretend to know the solution. I'm not suggesting any sort of policy. I'm just saying that with David, we must recognize that there are those who are oppressed by words even in our culture. Another example that, that is equally uncomfortable, I think, for many of us is those who are illegal immigrants. They are by definition illegal. By, by law, they, they should not be here. But if we are using words to keep people out so that we can keep a bigger piece of the pie for ourselves... And that is unjust. That is unjust. Yes, yes, governments must protect their borders. They, they must vet those who, who cross. And again, I have no policy solutions. I am not suggesting one thing or another. But it is unjust to craft laws that give the harassed and helpless no choice but to come illegally. And I know that makes us uncomfortable. I know that that's not sort of the way we normally speak. It makes me uncomfortable. It's not the way I normally speak. It's not the way I, I normally think. But we must begin to understand with David that there are those who are oppressed by words. They are those who are oppressed by the way the laws are written or, or the way the codes are, are worked out. It's not just those who are oppressed by, by actual weapons, but those who are oppressed by words who must rouse our concern and our compassion. But of course, that brings us to our third point. What are we supposed to do about it? We, we've noticed the oppression. We, we've begun to, to feel their pain. We've begun to have compassion. Now what? What do we do about it? And this brings us to our third point. 
Yes, we are to be concerned for the oppressed. Yes, we are to be concerned for those who are oppressed by words. And now notice what David does about it. He calls upon God to act. In response to the injustice that he sees all around him, David calls upon God to save. He calls upon God to to cut off the flattering lips. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting this is the only thing that we may do. Of course, you may leverage whatever position, power, and opportunities you have to to come to the assistance of the marginalized and the oppressed. But recognize you are a finite creature with with limited resources and limited knowledge. Even once you have recognized the the plight of the alien or the, the plight of the minority, you may not know what to do about it. You may not know how to how to help. And the things that you try to do to help may actually bring harm. That's just the way fallen human beings work. We may not know what to do about it. But what we must do is pray. What we must do is bring their concern before God. We must take up their concerns and we must bring them before the mercy seat of the Lord God Almighty. And we must call upon Him to save. Now, obviously, you cannot pray specifically for every oppressed person in the whole, whole world. As I said, you are finite. You are, you are limited. But you can, you can pray generally for injustice around the world. You can pray for those in, in southern Sudan. You can, you can pray for those in, in North Korea. You can find tools online that will help you do that. And you can pray more specifically for, for those who are being oppressed even in your own backyard whether it be here in the United States or or here in Tennessee or here in Cleveland or even on your own street. We can pray for those who are oppressed. We must make the concerns of those who are are marginalized, those who who are beaten down, we must make their concerns our own and we must bring them before the throne of the Lord God Almighty. Just as we must not be concerned only for our own troubles. We must not pray only for our own troubles. Now again, let me confess, I I don't do this very well. I've not done this very well over the years. I've not taught my family to do this very well. When I I think about the way that my my family tends to pray, or when I think about the way that that I tend to pray, we tend to be very focused on our own concerns. We tend to be focused on on the concerns of of this particular body. We tend to be, be focused on things that we feel personally. And it is good and it is right to pray for those things. But I think David shows us that we must lift our eyes higher. We must begin to pray beyond our own horizons. We must learn to to lift up those who are oppressed all around us. When we see vileness exalted, when we see the wicked on the prowl, we must learn to pray against them. We must learn to call upon God to save. Now some of you do this better than I do. Many of you uh, have, have noticed the, the uh, sort of uh, coming forth of new prayer groups and of, of a new prayer ministry here at Trinity. And I am so thankful for those who, who have taken the lead in those areas, who have, who have begun to, to lead us more and more in kingdom prayer. And I would encourage you, join in with what they are doing. Learn to pray beyond your own horizons. Learn to pray beyond your own concerns. And learn to pray with boldness. Learn to pray with confidence. You see, sometimes we we, we are hesitant to do this because we think, well, it's just prayer. 
But what could be more powerful than, than prayer? The last thing I want you to, to notice here this morning is simply David's confidence in God's words. Why does David make prayer his, his frontal assault? Why does David make prayer the first thing that he does? Because he knows the word of God. Notice what he says, verse 6. He says, the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Yes, he's acknowledged the power of the words of the wicked, but the words of God are far greater. They are like silver purified seven times. Perfectly pure. David knows with full assurance that God will do all that he has promised to do. Not one of his words will fall to the ground or or be blown away like chaff. And what is it that the Lord has promised to do? David tells us, verse 5, the Lord himself is speaking and he says, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. We must not misunderstand. God is is not by default on the side of of the poor. He's not there to to rescue everyone who is is oppressed. But those who call upon Him will be rescued. He will be with those who put their trust in Him. Those who call upon Him for salvation shall never be put to shame. This is the promise of the Almighty God. God. And so what we see is that that David, because he knows the power of the words of God, he is is able to pray with with confidence. He's able to pray with boldness. But notice, he is confident that God will do what he has promised to do. Not necessarily what we ask him to do. Not necessarily what we would like him to do. But God will do all that he has promised to do. David's faith is not presumption. He's not presuming to tell God what he must do. But he is calling upon God to do what he knows he has promised to do. And what is it that God has promised to do? He has promised to work for the good of those who love Him. He has, he has promised to, to work for the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ, and for the good of those who are in Him by faith. He has promised to build His church and to establish His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is what our God is doing and so when we look around and we, we see injustice, when we see brokenness, we can pray against it with confidence because we know that our God has promised to bring it to an end. Not always on our timetable, not always according to our agenda, but in the fullness of time, according to His perfect wisdom, He will act. And what we prayed even this morning, that His kingdom would come and that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, we can pray that with full assurance that it will come to pass. Because we serve a God whose words are pure. Purified seven times in a furnace on the ground. That is our confidence in the Lord. And so we begin by saying, let us us learn to be concerned Let let us learn to to feel beyond our own horizon. Let us us learn to to come alongside the, the marginalized and the oppressed wherever we find them. And let us pray for them. Let us pray for them with confidence. Because we have confidence in our God. And we know that He is working for the good of all those who love Him. And because that is our confidence, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that?
Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness to us. We rejoice in the hope that you give us. Forgive us, Father, for being unconcerned. Forgive us for being so self-absorbed that we we do not even notice the troubles of others. And and forgive us for, for having little empathy when we do notice. Father, change our hearts that we might love our neighbor as ourselves. And then give us boldness to pray. To pray with confidence that you would act and that you would work for the praise of your glory and the good of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.